Well, good morning, River of Life. This morning, I want to uh, begin, if I can, by posing a, a question. And that is this. What do you think or what do you believe poses the most danger to you and your family? I mean, right now, today, in August 22nd of 2021, what is the one thing that poses the most danger to you and your family? Now, as I give you a, a few seconds to think about that, let me first of all tell you what the answer is not. The answer is not COVID. Now, listen, I believe, and this is my opinion, that we currently live in one of the most dangerous ages in all of human history for a Christian. Um, I believe that, but yet it has absolutely nothing to do with COVID. It has nothing to do with terrorism. It has nothing to do with wars or politics or, or really anything physical. Matthew 10.28 says this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the him there, by the way, is God. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. You see, if you believe the Bible, if you study the Bible, then you understand that according to the Bible, spiritual dangers are far more deadly, inherently and intrinsically and infinitely more deadly than anything physical could ever be. It's an amazing thing to me, right, that our country now is terrified of something that the Bible says we should not fear. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with taking precautions. Um, I get up every day and I get in my car or my truck, and the first thing I do is I, I put on a, a seatbelt. I take precautions. Yet, the, the the very idea of getting into a a wreck uh, never even enters my mind. There's no fear of that at all. Well, that's the way we should be. There, there's nothing wrong with taking precautions like masks or, or getting a vaccine if that's what you want to do. But we do not let fear rule us. It is spiritual dangers that we should be most aware of in our life, not physical. So let me rephrase the question. What spiritually do you think poses the most danger to us and our uh, families? Well, we could probably uh, debate this and come up with different answers, but I believe that the answer to that question is compromise. Compromising the laws of God, compromising the principles of God, and compromising the character of God. You see, we live in a time where our nation has, let's be honest, largely compromised the character that it once possessed. We live in a time where churches across America have compromised beliefs that they used to hold dear. We, we live in a time where individuals have compromised their values and in such cases, in some cases to such extremes, that they literally have apostatized and walked away from the faith entirely. Now, even as I say that, I know what you're thinking because I'd probably be thinking the same thing if I was sitting there. And that is, I would never do that. 
I would never compromise my beliefs and my values. I would never walk away from the faith. This morning, I want to look at two examples of men in Scripture who compromised. Um, and I can tell you that both of these men, at one point in them in their life, would have probably said the exact same thing. I would never do that. But, in fact, they did. And so we want to look at their examples this morning for a reason. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 12 says this, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, Paul says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If we think that we won't do it, if we think that we can't fall to compromise, then we need to think again because the Bible is clear that we absolutely can. Now, the first example that I want to look at is the example of Aaron, who is, of course, Moses' brother. Now, we're all familiar with the example of uh, Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. If we haven't uh, read it in the Bible, we've we've seen the movie with Charlton Hestern and Yul Brynner. Um, uh, but the story we're going to read today about Aaron comes out of Exodus uh, 32. And Exodus 32 is probably one of the scariest chapters uh, in the Bible uh, to me. And I say it's scary because this man Aaron had spiritual experiences that far exceed anything I know that I've ever had or that many of us have ever had. For example, he was with Moses when God poured out the ten plagues upon the nation of, of Egypt. He, he saw all of that. He walked across dry ground when God parted the Red Sea. He was in the wilderness and saw the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day that God used to guide the people of Israel. He ate the heavenly bread. He ate the manna. In the wilderness, he drank water from the rock when when Moses struck it. He saw the power of God, but beyond that, even beyond that, let me read uh, one example of an experience that he had. This comes from Exodus twenty four, verses nine through eleven. It says, "Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel." And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. Can you imagine? This man, Aaron, goes into the very presence of God. He sees God. He eats and drinks uh, right in front of, of God. What, what an experience. Yet this very same man in just a few days would compromise. You see, after they'd come back down off the mountain, sometime later Moses goes back up. And normally when he would go up on the mountain to meet with God, he would come back after a few days. But this time he stays gone for almost six weeks. And of course he's receiving the, the law of God during this time. 
But while he's gone, the people who are camped down in the valley, you know, they're looking up on the mountain and they they see the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the trumpets. And I mean, it, they, they, they have no idea what's going on up there. And after a few days go by and then a few weeks, they realize they, they think they think to themselves, this man's not coming back. What are we going to do? Who's going to lead us? So they come to Aaron and they ask him, they ask him, make us gods who will go before us. Now, you would think, of course, that Aaron would just say something like, you know, are you crazy? Um, I'm not going to do that. But if you go and read Exodus 32, it, it doesn't, he doesn't even seem to really argue about it. So he gives in to the people's request. He tells them, go and bring all your gold jewelry, and he melts it down, and he fashions a golden calf for them to worship. Now, at this point, when you read that story, how can you not ask the question, how could he do that? How could this man who had seen the things he'd seen and heard the things he's heard and experienced the things he's experienced with with the presence of God and the power of God. How could that man have fallen so easily into idolatry? Well, here's what I think we need to see about Aaron. And that is, I don't believe Aaron in his mind was totally rejecting God to follow a golden calf. I I don't think that's what he was doing at all. You see, Aaron knows that God is real. After after all, we just read, he, he, he saw him. He ate and drank in his presence. And Aaron knows the calf is not real. After all, he's, he melted down the gold jewelry. He, he formed the calf with his own hands. He knows that's not a God. He knows that's not real. What's going on here is something that we call syncretism. That's S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M, syncretism. This is where you blend one aspects of, or, or blend aspects of one religion with another. For example, you reach over and you take a, a beliefs or you take certain thoughts or you take certain rituals from another religion and you just blend it into your own. As I said, I don't believe Aaron in his mind was rejecting the living God. For example, in Exodus 32.5, it says this, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, talking about the golden calf. And then Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, or to Yahweh. So he wasn't abandoning the worship of Yahweh. What Aaron was doing was he was just tweaking the worship of Yahweh just a little bit so that it fit more in line with what the people wanted. You see, these the people, they looked up on the mountain and they saw the fire and the clouds and the lightning and heard the trumpets and that God absolutely terrified them. They wanted a God more like the gods that other nations had. They wanted a God that they could touch and they could feel and see. They wanted a, a user-friendly God like other nations had. So they came up with a, a compromise God. R.C. Sproul says this, The cow gave no law and he demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. 
but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. Listen, every time I read that, I realize that our culture has done the very same thing. We have churches across America that have compromised their beliefs and compromised their values and compromised their character. But yet, if you confronted them, they would say, oh no, we're not, we're not um, turning away from Christ. We're not turning away from God. We're just, we're just tweaking it a little bit. We're just making him a little more user-friendly. So what they do is they play up the good stuff. They play up the love and they play up the, the mercy and they play up those things. But yet they play down things like sin and wrath and hell and justice. This God that they're making in their own image has no law and demands no obedience. It has no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared, as R.C. Sproul says, but at least, at least this God won't intrude on our fun. At least he won't tell us how to live our lives. But you see, folks, whether it's 1500 B.C. or 2021 A.D., compromise always brings consequences. If you compromise God's Word, if you compromise His principles, if you compromise His character, then things will go bad, and they will go bad very quickly. If you go back and you read that chapter um, after they had... had um, had this feast to Yahweh that uh, uh, Aaron had proclaimed. It says they began to play and they began to dance, and the Hebrew word actually uses the word naked. That the the idea here is this this celebration descended into sexual immorality. And of course Moses comes down and sees this happening, and the very first thing he does is he tells the Levites, he says, take your sword and begin to slay. And 3,000 men died that day. And the very last verse of that chapter says that God sent plagues on the people for what they had done. You see, compromise always brings consequences. The second example, excuse me, that I want to look at is the example of Solomon, who, of course, was the king of Israel. Now, Israel is a, a a subject that just fascinates me. I read a while back that Israel is the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language, and worships the same God that it did 3,000 years ago. The really interesting thing about Israel is that it sits on a land bridge. If you were to Google uh, Israel or look at Israel on Google Maps and zoom out, what you'll see is that to its uh, north is the Mediterranean Sea, to its south is the Red Sea, which flows down into the Arabian Sea. And if you wanted to move between the continents of Europe and Asia down to Africa, and you wanted to do that across land, there's only one way to get there, and that is through the land of Israel. It it is a land bridge between these three continents, which in ancient times made it a coveted trade route. It's been conquered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Ottomans, the Byzantines, the Muslims. It goes on and on. If you just open the Old Testament, 
and read uh, the Kings or the or Chronicles or Judges, you can't help but notice just it's just like battle after battle, war after war, fight after fight. But it wasn't always like that. It wasn't always like that. There was actually a time in Israel's history when they were a superpower. You could literally compare them to America today. King David, who of course was Solomon's father, he had built this empire. He had built this superpower of a, of a nation. And he had done it through war. He had done it through battles. He had done it through the shedding of blood. But at the end of his reign, he had essentially subjugated all the kings of the world that mattered at that time. And, and nobody would dare come against Israel. They were just too strong. And in fact, these kings would bring tribute to him on a year-by-year basis. And of course, when King David died, he left all of this to his son Solomon. Now, Solomon is a humble man, and, and, and God asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he asked for wisdom, and and that's exactly what God gave him. God gave him wisdom that surpassed anything a human being had had since then, uh, up to then, or since that point. Let me read a a passage from 2 Chronicles 9, uh, 22-28. And I won't read the whole thing, but I want to read some different parts of it, just to give you an idea of what was going on in that kingdom at that time. It says, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his presence, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all the lands. I mean, you've pretty much got a perfect situation here. You've got a superpower of a nation. They've got perfect peace because nobody would would dare come against them. People are literally, or these other nations are literally uh, bringing tribute to you year by year. So wealth is pouring into your country. Your king is the wisest man that's ever lived. The favor of God could not be... Uh, greater than it was at that time. And with all of that, he still compromised. Now, you may ask, well, how did he do that? Well, I don't know if you noticed as I read through that passage that the very last sentence I said, horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt. Now, as far as I'm aware at that time, horses were not native to Israel. So if you were going to have horses, you had to bring them in or import them, and everybody wanted horses from Egypt. They they had the greatest war horses. They were known around the world for their ferocity and their bravery, and and uh, so that's what Solomon did. He brought in horses from Egypt. Now you and I may think, what's the big deal? Well, it turns out it's a big deal because God had said, "Do not do that." I mentioned earlier when Moses went up on the mountain for almost six weeks and was receiving the law from God. And, and one of the things that God told him was what kings were to do, these future kings of this nation of Israel, some things they were to do and some things they weren't to do. And one of the things that they, they were not supposed to do is outlined in Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen. Let me read it to you. 
It says, only he, talking about this future king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Now you may wonder why would God not want people to bring in horses from Egypt because again it's this idea of other nations trusted in horses and chariots and their weapons to to uh, protect themselves God's thinking you don't need that you've got me I brought you out of Egypt I brought you have taken you into the promised land I have given you all of these blessings I can protect you you don't need horses and chariots like other nations but even though he knew that he did it anyway now you may say well maybe he didn't know well it turns out that he did another little tidbit in that same chapter of deuteronomy deuteronomy 17 18 says this and when he talking about a future king sits on the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the priest And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and by doing them. You see, he knew. God, one of the things that God said these kings had to do when they became a king is they literally had to sit down with an empty book and copy every line from the law so that they make sure that with their eyes they saw everything that God required of them or everything that God told them not to do. But he knew, and he did it anyway. After all, what could it hurt, right? It's just it's just horses. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. If you can move an inch, then you can move a foot. And if you can move a foot, you can move a yard. And if you can move a yard, you can move a mile. You see, one day you look up and you have no idea how you've compromised so badly, how you are so far from the favor of God, but it just happened one little compromise at a time. You see, once Solomon had compromised with the horses, well, why not compromise with human beings? You see, there was something else that kings were told by God not to do. We find this in Deuteronomy 17, 17. It says, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. You see, Solomon had a weakness, and his weakness was that he loved women, especially foreign women. Egyptians, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, all these nations that God had said have nothing to do with them, much less don't take wives from them. Solomon did it anyway. He compromised. You see, it started just a little compromise with horses, and it led to compromising. I think the Bible tells us he had 700 wives, all princesses, and 300 concubines. And I'm sure that he would have pointed to those marriages as he was building agreements with other kings or whatever. But in the end, it cost him, and it cost him dearly. I want to read 1 Kings 11, 4 through 8, um, which is a description of Solomon at the end of his life. 
It says, When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. By the way, Molech was known for child sacrifice. And he did this on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Here he is at the end of his life, Solomon, a man who had walked with God and talked with God, a humble man. And he's brought the worship of Ashtoreth and Milcom and Chemosh and Molech. He's brought this into his kingdom. He, he starts off with a little thing. It's just horses. But he eventually finds himself at the least condoning and at the worst being an accessory to the sins of idolatry and possibly even outright murder. Sins that he would never, never have considered committing at the beginning of his reign. And by giving his royal sanction to these idols, he set a precedent that would plague his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons after him. The kings of Israel would struggle for years with idolatry, finally to the point that God had had enough, and he ripped the kingdom away from them. You see, compromise always comes with com- uh, with consequences. Now, I want to close this morning uh, with a couple of thoughts. First of all is this one. Why do we do it? Why do we compromise? Well, I think the two main reasons we uh, compromise are, are shown in the examples of these two men. First is in the example of Aaron. I think that one of the reasons we compromise is that we just want to be like the world. Nobody wants to stand on an island all by themselves. If you go back to the nation of Israel, at the time they were considered to be weird because they only worshipped one God. All the other nations had multiple gods, but Israel only had one. And then, of course, they had this thing called um, uh, circumcision that, you know, didn't, didn't quite fit with anything anybody had ever heard of before. So it just it made them seem weird and all by themselves. And, and nobody likes that, right? So you can see how they just wanted to be like other nations. So if we just compromise on a few things, maybe they'll like us. Maybe they'll, they'll want to hang out with us. Maybe, maybe they'll even come to church with us. So we compromise. We tweak the Word of God. We tweak the character of God to somehow make Him more appealing. But you see, it just doesn't work that way. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, when we tweak God's Word, when we tweak His principles, when we tweak His character to make Him more appealing, in essence, we are tweaking the gospel. We are watering it down. And by doing so, we water down the very power of God for salvation to the ones 
that we are trying to reach. When we compromise, we compromise the power to save. The second example, of course, that of Solomon gives us the reason why we compromise, and that is that if we're honest, we just have things in our life that we love and that we don't want to give up. I mean, Solomon just wanted horses. Solomon wanted women, and he justified it. And for many of us, that's what we do. We compromise, and then we tweak the Word of God and the character of God to justify our own sin. Now, as we close, we need to talk about how do we guard against it. Compromise is so dangerous to our life spiritually. It always comes with consequences. How do we, how do we guard against that? Well, the first place we have to guard against it is in the church. Both Aaron and Solomon were leaders um, of their nations and, and in a sense, and their weaknesses had serious comp- consequences for themselves, for their families, and for their nation as a whole. So the first thing we should learn from that is God's people need strong leaders who will not compromise the truth. There may come a time when we preach something out of God's Word, and the next Sunday there will be people carrying um, protest signs in, in the parking lot. That's already happening in churches across America. It could happen here at, at River of Life. We need strong leaders who, even if that happens, they will not compromise the truth. We are blessed at, at River of Life to have an incredible pastor in, in Henry Jones, a man who not only today doesn't compromise the truth, but has stood strong for years and years. And one of the things we do a little bit differently of River of Life is we have a plurality of, of men who come into our pulpit. In fact, we have at least six men who regularly preach at River of Life. And one of the things that we wanted you to know is those six men are meeting regularly together for several things. Number one is to hold each other accountable, to look each other in the eye, to point a finger if we have to, and make sure that we we do not compromise the Word of God, that we preach and teach the entire truth of of God. So that's the first thing, having strong leaders. The second place we need to guard against it is in our families. Uh, Brother Al Terrell preached a great message two or three weeks ago uh, to men. And I would just, uh, I won't re-preach his message, but I will just say this, that men are the leaders of their families, and as such they will be held accountable for the compromise in those families, whether it's in the marriage, whether it's with their children. Uh, Men, open your eyes. Stay awake. Be alert for compromise in your family. At the end of the day, it all comes down to individuals. Each one of us, whether we're a a mother or a father or a child or a, a leader or a lay person, whatever the case may be, we all have to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we compromising? Are we compromising our values? Are we compromising in our relationships? One of the the places that compromise takes place so quickly and easily is in our relationships. Um, Solomon let let the women, he, he brought them into his inner circle, people, and they turned his heart away. We're not to go live in a monastery. We are to, to have relationships with, with unbelievers. That's perfectly fine. 
But there's a big difference between that and bringing people into your inner circle, into your intimate relationships where they'll have the ability to turn your heart away from God. Are you compromising as an excuse for sin? Are there just things in your life that you love and and you're compromising um, just because you don't want to take responsibility for those things and give them up? Those are all questions that we need to ask ourselves. At the end of the day, if it can happen to men like Aaron and Solomon, men who had spiritual experiences that far exceed what any of us have had, men who walked and talked with God, if it can happen to them, then it can happen to you and I. And once we compromise, once we've let Satan get his foot in the door, so to speak, then the process of sin has commenced. And godly character, which is so, so very precious to God, can begin to erode. We need to learn to spot the the little compromises and make sure that we stop and repent and, and get them covered before they lead to bigger sins. You know, God is, is so gracious. If you are listening to this uh, sermon right now, then God has put you in a time and a place where you are hearing the message of compromise. And the Bible tells us, I believe in 2 Corinthians 11.31, that if we would judge ourselves, then we would not be judged. So what an opportunity this is. If you have compromise in your life, right now, today, this moment, we can take the time to repent, clean that up, and get back to the godly character which is so precious to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.